Grit Backstories with two grit mates, Peter and Dave on the CEO Huddle. When I was a little girl, just about 21, my mom says if you get a man, you better get a gun, cause he'll do you good and teach you right to the day that you are with. Then he'll stay drunk and gone all night and beat you till you're dead. You better learn business in the back barrel. Learn which way to heart that gun. Learn the business in the back barrel. Just gone down a time you can run. Oh, it's that time again, the CEO Huddle 2.0. Uh, my great mate Pete sitting opposite. How are you? Well, I'm, I've, I've got a little bit of a cold today. Oh, not coronavirus. No, I don't. No, I don't think it is. But um, still a little bit bunged up. But um, but feeling all right. Feeling good. Talking. Feeling We're going to talk books. Yeah. We're talking books. Indeed. All brought to you by Millionaire Magazine. Millionaire dot life. So, CEO Huddle 2.0, we're talking books, great mate. Brought to you in association with... Millionaire Magazine and Millionaire.live. Hi, the, Millie. The ultimate in uh, fashion, jewellery, lifestyle, inspirational people, magazine, online. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be carrying around a big magazine. So, it's a, it's a quality, quality publication. And still in need of a quality, quality travel article. Well, I think you're booked in for May, aren't you? Am I? Well, Malaysia, May. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Malaysia, May. The pair of us. Exactly. Yeah, great. Anyway, let's talk publication. Let's talk books. Bill Gladstone. Pray tell. Well, as you know, I think you know. Yeah, you are are an author of a book. Thank you. I I didn't want to say it myself, but I am. And so I've been through that whole journey of Mm. you should write a book. Um, Why don't you write a book? Oh, I'll write a book. How's your book going? Um, oh, have you finished your book yet? Um, is your book out there yet? Is it on Amazon? Yes, yes. Then the ultimate question, how many have you sold? Mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is a strange thing. But, but had you reached a million, I'm sure you'd have loved to have puffed out the chest and gone, a million. Well, there you go. Um, but it is a strange cycle of, of events when you do something like this. So I did it. And um, I went from a clean sheet of paper to 105,000 words and had various rewrites because I got advice that that would work better, and, and, and. And then I got to a guy called Bill Gladstone, mm. who is a probably, I do say on the, on the intro, he probably knows more about books than anybody on the planet. A guy that's steeped in it, California-based, um, although he's from New York, um, works with some of the best and well-known people around um, Pamela Anderson. Mm-hmm. For one, yeah, <laughs> as a throwaway. This is Pamela Anderson, Baywatch, Pamela Anderson. Yeah, the okay. Very same. Yeah. Um, but more more highbrow, Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now. Um, Neil Donald Walsh, who wrote Conversation with God. Mm-hmm. Interesting um, collection of books. So a really great guy. And I got to him, strangely enough, uh, saying, I've got this book and I think it'd be great. Why don't you be my agent? And he kind of went, yeah, okay. Um, maybe, <laughs> uh, but eventually we got there. So he is—he is my agent. Fantastic. Bless him. Yeah. So let's find out more about him. Let's find. Do we do we delve deeply into how you got the deal then? Well, why he said yes. I think at the end I say he took pity on me, and he says no, that's not true. But the thing about Bill is he's a guy that I haven't met many people who are so assured of who they are. Mm. 
completely authentic. It is what he is. Um, there's no fluff. Very, very um, comfortable in, in his own skin. The problem is, when he when he taught, he's on transmit, so yeah. um, he yeah. wants to tell you a story. So I got I got to ask him quite a lot of things, but I didn't really get to where I want to get to. Well, let's find out more. And you haven't yet plugged the book, so you might as well plug it. Oh, my word. How could I not? In fact, why don't we say, brought to you by Camel in the Tent. <laughs> but we can't because it's brought to you by Millionaire.live and Millionaire Magazine. Fair enough. Anyway, the book... In association this week with Camel in the Tent. The book is called Camel in the Tent, and it's an inspiring story of personal growth. It's a great read. So today I'm delighted to be joined by someone who knows more about the book industry than pretty much anyone on the planet. The founder of Waterside Productions, a renowned literary agent and publisher. He works with some of the most respected and influential authors of our time, including Marie Kondo, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, Neil Donald Walsh and Tom Hartman, and has personally placed more than 5,000 titles with dozens of publishers. He's also my agent, which we'll get to later, a uh, very, very warm welcome to William Gladstone. <laughs> well, Peter, it's delightful to be here with you today. Um, I'm in sunny Cardiff, California, and you're in England. So I'm, I'm in a rainy, dark, miserable England in lockdown. So uh, are you in lockdown, Bill, or are you allowed to walk on the beach? We're, I, I'll be walking on the beach as soon as the interview is over. <laughs> But how is it there? Is it, is it, is it, are you through the oh, snowfall? It's, things are not perfect here. I mean, I, I think I feel very blessed. I mean, the business is actually booming because everyone's locked in and they reading and writing more. But we actually just entered a lockdown for the entire Southern California region. Uh, 33 million people are impacted, all of whom have been told that they must stay at home except for our exercise and there's essential services, obviously. So you can go to the store to buy food, you can go to a medical appointment, um, but really just about everything else is shut down. You're not wow. allowed to even have guests over for dinner. You're not even supposed to have family members over for dinner unless they are members of your household living quarters. Um, so it's, it's very restrictive here. And you know, obviously everyone feels very stressed. Mm. Um, you know, most people are wearing masks as they should when they go out and keeping social distance. But, um, you know, this is, is probably going to be the worst next month, at least in California, since the pandemic began. Because right. people celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday and they did a lot of travel and, you know, our rates are just spiking. Yeah. Well, I think today we, we started to vaccine, strangely mm -hmm. enough. Um, so I think we're actually coming through it. We're in different tiers. So where I am, we've got similar mm -hmm. rules to you. But strangely enough, London is a is a lower tier. And restaurants are open. So, I mean, you know, it is what it is. Well, and but it's nice. We Our restaurants just shut yesterday. We had uh, almost six months of partial restaurants. Outdoor dining was permitted and limited indoor dining. But they've shut down even outdoor dining now. We're in, we're in pretty much our most severe lockdown since this began. Right, right. And and are people reading more in this time? People are definitely reading more. And I can tell you as an agent, they're writing more than ever. Really? I'm, I'm busier than I've been in many years. 
everybody seems to be getting their proposals done, getting their manuscripts in early. Uh, they have no distractions. They're, they're yeah. working very hard. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think there's, there's two ways to go on this. One is that people go into meltdown and, and they kind of be mobilized. Or the other is they use this time to, to kind of refresh themselves. And I know I, I listened to you on something else. Hold on a sec. No calls. Sorry. Um, you, were, you, were, you were saying that you think that there's almost a reset that we're kind of looking at our lives and, you know, things like materialism won't be as important. So it's been a, a really an interesting time, hasn't it? That no doubt there'll be lots of books about this phase of life. Yeah, um, we definitely are seeing an uptick reflection, self-reflection. Yeah. yeah. And um, I have one client, and I don't think she originated the saying, but it's a great saying. She said, basically, Mother Nature is telling us, children, go to your rooms about your behavior. And I think that is, if not literally true, uh, emotionally true. We have to really think about what has brought us to this state, because it's not just this virus. Um, and there's many ways in which we have contributed to the creation of this virus. But this time to reflect, I mean, for a few days, at least when we first down, there were scientific indications that pollution was down and there was some you know, betterment of the environmental indicators. Um, I think if you look at long-term where human beings are as a species, the environment is still a much bigger issue than the coronavirus. Two years from now, I suspect coronavirus will be behind us, if not entirely 99% behind us. Mm. The environmental issues will be actually more severe two years from now than they are today. Um, so a period of reflection is potentially beneficial. People really do need to start thinking about what is the essence of the human experience. Um, obviously with our technology, we're, we're able to still be in communication in a way that was unimaginable even 30 years ago. Yeah. So, you, you know, there's a lot that you can do even when isolated, but more importantly than thinking about just this short-term coronavirus situation is long-term, what does it mean to be a human being? What are our definitions of success? What should we be striving for? Those of us who are motivated by business, what should our business goals be? What is the purpose of our business? What is the purpose of our lives? And I think these are the kinds of issues that people are actually talking about much more than they were before the pandemic. Yeah, and interestingly, I think they're reading about them as well. So I think it's fascinating. I know that you, you, you're very involved in mind, body and spirit as a genre, but it seems that we've got, we've, we've got more possessions than we ever had. We've, mm -hmm. we've got more resources at our disposal, but we seem to be less happy. But by the same token, do you, do you think more people are connected to mind, body and spirit than they were 30 years ago, for example? Yes, actually, I think they. I think more people are connected. Part of it is, I mean, it's a double sword. This this whole technology revolution. It's so easy to reach people, and when you get a bestseller today, frankly, the numbers are bigger than they were thirty years ago. Um, social media allows something like a Marie Kondo to reach. It's probably up to, oh, I don't know, at least 
10, 20 million readers worldwide in all editions. Um, our Eckhart Tolle were probably close to 50 million in all editions worldwide. And I'm talking about translations as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you didn't have numbers like that 30, 40 years ago. You know, you had books that sold well over time, you know, whether it was Napoleon Hill or Dale Carnegie, um, but they didn't sell as massively and as quickly. Um, because of Oprah, we actually sold four and a half million copies of our New Earth by Eckhart Tolle in under 90 days. That had never happened before. That was, wow. that was 10 years ago, actually. But um, those events are really because of our technology. Our technology allows us to reach many, many more people much more quickly. At the same time, in too many instances, our technology is creating flat moments rather than real moments of intimacy. And I think that we have a whole generation growing up and I'm very concerned about my grandchildren and other young people who during this pandemic are being deprived of any social interaction whatsoever. Most mm. of our schools have been shut down or limited. And so the children are relying more and more on Zoom and on other media connections. And it's not the same. <laughs> I mean, it's better yeah. than nothing, but yeah. it's not the same. And, um, you know, just in terms of defining, are we just avatars on a screen or are we real human beings? Mm. And what does it mean? And what's the difference? What's the difference between your on-screen persona and your actual persona? Yeah, yeah, it's different, isn't it? I, there's, some people are saying that, you know, meetings and travel are a thing of the past, but I think you're right. I think a Zoom meeting is not the same as walking into a room, having a flip chart with a pen and be able to interact with human beings. It, it's just well, different, isn't exactly. it? Exactly, and, and, and it's a different way, style of communication. Of course, interrupting people is not necessarily as good, but it is good. Sometimes you want to say, no, stop. You're yeah. in the wrong direction. And, and, and you, know, you can do it on Zoom, but it's not quite the same. Also, you, you feel people, you, you, you feel them a little bit over the internet, over Zoom, but it's not the same as when you're in a room with someone, you get a feeling. Yeah. Um, there, there's other modalities other than just what you get with the audio and the visual. And um, I actually taught a course on nonverbal communication at Harvard as a graduate student. And 90% of communication has nothing to do with the words, which is, is some people don't understand. There's a lot, well, everything else is just as important. Yeah. And in ultimate, more important. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. It's the inflection, it's the emotion, expression. There's, there's a lot of details that we're missing just with Zoom. It's the CEO Huddle, brought to you by Millionaire.Live. Great backstories with two great mates, Peter and Dave on the CEO Huddle. Their business in the lab there's gonna come a time when you can run. There's, there's this aura, isn't there? I, I read, I'm a big Elvis fan, and um, I saw an interview the other day from some session musicians from 69 when he, he came back to make an album, and one of them said, if you had your back to the door, you knew if he walked in the room mm -hmm. just by his presence. And, mm -hmm. and we've kind of gone to this. But is that similar to, do you think that reading an e-book, so Zoom versus a meeting, do you think an e-book versus holding a physical book? I, I think there's a huge difference. And I should, probably shouldn't say this because for my business, I want <laughs> to encourage people to read e-books. It's, yeah. it's really... 
a very important part of the industry makes up 20% of, of revenue. Didn't you start I e personally? Though? What? Didn't you start eBooks? I, I did. I actually had the very first ebook company ever. Right. I was early and I didn't make a killing and we closed it up and, you know, then, you know, the rest is history. Other people made the fortune. But I believe in ebooks for place. Certainly, if you're going to get on a plane, rather than 10 books, you can carry your Kindle and it's much convenient. Yeah. Um, and there's other instances where I'm sure an ebook is preferable. Um, particularly reference books when you can go to something right away, find what you're looking for. But I personally avoid ebooks. I want to read the old. I like the paper. I like the feel of it. I like sort of looking at the book. And if I put a bookmark in it, oh, I can see I only have a little bit almost there, um, yeah. you know, or whatever. I just like the tactile and the, and the, the relationship I have with the physical book. I'm old fashioned. I'm of a generation that didn't grow up with the ebook. So for the younger generation, they're probably feeling, oh, guys, nuts. I have just the same relationship with my ebook that I have with a print book. In fact, I'm more, I grew up with ebooks. They're, they're much easier to use. I can start and stop whenever I want. You know, it'll keep my for me. It, you know, yeah. there's probably all kinds of benefits that they see that I don't. But I personally, I'm always going to a physical book. Yeah, I do. And so with ebooks, are we still buying more books than we were before? Yes, yes. All, all categories are up right now. Um, ebooks are up significantly, but print books are also up. Now, print books being sold in bookstores are slightly down because so many of the bookstores have had to be shared. And in the United States, in particular, the independent bookstores are the stores suffering the most. Yeah. Barnes and Noble is down a little bit, but not significant. And they have the resources to you know, get through this period. We are concerned that we're gonna lose some of our independent bookstores, uh, but print books, primarily because of Amazon, are up. The actual sale of print books is up right. year to year. And, and do you worry about the fact that Amazon might be the only place to buy books one day? Well, I don't worry about it, but I don't like it. Um, <laughs> I would prefer to have 20 different companies, all robust and strong, competing. Yeah. And, you know, there are maybe 20 companies competing for ebooks, but maybe only getting five of the market and Amazon getting 95% of the yeah. online market. And that's not a healthy ecology for any business. Yeah. Um, we happen to have a very close relationship with Amazon. I personally met with Jeff before he was such a big deal when he was still talking to ordinary human beings. Um, I respect him. I respect Amazon. They're great. And our business is bigger because of them. So that's all on the positive side. On the negative side, they they want whenever they want. The rest of us just have to. Yeah. Um, if they go and um, you know want to raise all their prices, there's nothing to do to prevent them. If they want to cut all our bar discounts, there's nothing we can do. Um, if they want to boycott an author or a publisher, there's nothing we can do about it. And in each of those instances it would not be a trivial outcome for the publisher or author. So yeah. it's not, 
it's not healthy. Yeah. So, Bill, can I ask you um, how you got to where you are? So, you, so you go to Harvard, Yale, and I know that you're from a book family, so your dad was a publisher and stuff. But, but, but at what point, when you're at those amazing places? The, the reality is, you know, I, I was always very ambitious, so I fled from what was easy. The fact that I was born into a publishing family, my father founded a publishing company in 1936 called Arco Publishing. And the books they did at the time, frankly, kind of bored me. They were test preparation books. Then he expanded, he got into horse books. I wasn't into horses. He got into health books. I wasn't really into health at that time. Um, so I wasn't interested in the actual books he was publishing. So to me, it was like, well, I'm going to explore other things. And I actually got involved with movies. I worked with Rod Serling and went around the world making ancient mystery. I was 22 years old. So I had other options. And I was invited actually to go to Hollywood as an associate producer for a film project. Um, I didn't stay. My second week on the job, they asked me, oh, as associate producer, you need to help this writer who has writer's block. And he says he needs some cocaine. And I said, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I didn't know that was part of my job. This doesn't work for me. So I left the film business and went back uh, to Harvard and, and finished up my PhD and all like that. I didn't really feel there was any opportunity in academics that exciting enough for me. I went into anthropology because I really wanted to be with the Akwe Siobhan, my mentor, David Mayberry, he had lived among the Amazonian Indians. That was my goal when I you know, entered Harvard. By the time I was there, when they sent me down to Brazil, they fortunately didn't tell me because I, I, I could have been injured, but they prevented me from going into the because at that moment in time, they, Amazonian Indians were rebelling against Funai, which was supposed to protect them. And there was actually killing going on between the Indians and the government. And, you know, they, they kept me away from all of that. It was like being in a Kafka novel. I go from one bureau to the next and be told, oh, you got to get this paper and that paper. And anyway, I ended up doing other things. I was in Brazil, but that was really what I wanted to do. I wanted to explore. I wanted to be among different kinds of people and you know, be an anthropologist. Today, if there are any uncontacted tribes anywhere in the world, the only thing we really should do is not contact them. It's, yeah. We learned that just contact alone is going to decimate them. And yeah. there's, there may only be a few hundred people left on this planet who have not had contact with modern civilization. But in any event, getting back to the book publishing, it really was almost by accident. Um, my father had a heart attack. He needed me to help take things over at his company. Um, and then we got things stabilized. He recovered from his heart attack, offered another opportunity to go around the world and make a second movie. So I left the country and this was before we had cell phones and faxes and all these communications. He had a third heart attack day after I left and made a quick sale of the company to Prentice Hall. So I came back and I no longer had a publishing company to run. Um, I was at Prentice Hall, but that was kind of a boring company. And I said, I'm just going to start my own company. And Waterside Productions was started then. That was 1979, I think. And I started really as a publishing consultant. I was doing special projects for other publishers. And one of those projects led to a lunch with Ivanovich of Harcourt Brace Ivanovich. 
and they hired me to run their gym they had just started in San Diego. And that's what got me out to California. I there for two years, but I still really wanted to start a film company. So after two years, I left to start my film company only to discover that you needed a lot of money to make a <laughs> and I didn't have enough money. Um, I, I did a couple of small productions that I thought would make money and they didn't. So what was I to do? I knew everything about publishing. A lot of the authors that I had signed up when I was with Harcourt contacted me and said, they canceled my book. What do I do? And, and this is kind of common. If you sign with an editor who leaves right. and nobody at that company understands, they often cancel the contract. So I said, oh, I know everybody in publishing. I'll get you a contract with somebody else. And I did that. The sideline, I was agenting while really focusing on making movies, which were not making money, but the agenting was making money. And then I was very fortunate. I was playing tennis with Nancy Kay, the daughter of Andrew Kay, who started nonlinear systems. And nonlinear systems ended up creating Pro Computer. Overnight, they went from a $2.5 million device company to a $250 million computer company. And they hired a group of documentation writers to document uh, CPM and all this software. And found out about my relationship with book publishing. And they came to me and said, friends at Osborne and other computer companies are writing these manuals for real publishers and making a lot of money. Can you help? And I went to ask mine. He said, no, let them freelance. As long as I'm their time, they won't be bugging me for raises. See what you can do. So overnight, I became the largest provider of compu how-to computer information in the world. Wow. We ended up having a run of 10 years in which I was so busy, I never really had time to look at any other kind of book. We, we, we had 25% of all the bestsellers ever published in that genre. That genre at the time was the number one genre in every bookstore in the world. We generated literally billions of dollars in retail sales, tens of millions of dollars for our clients, tens of millions of dollars for me <laughs> and my company and other people working with me. But, you know, so we became the maven source, whether it was a book about Lotus, a book DOS, a book about Unix, a book, you know, we even did, uh, this is hard for people to believe, but we did the first internet yellow pages at the beginning of the internet. <laughs> you didn't have Google, you actually had a book that listed every address on the internet. Wow. Obviously that became outdated quickly, but we were in the right place at the right time. We had so much fun. I got to meet Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. You know, I went to all the conferences. I was a big deal in the world of technology. And that really is how the company grew. Then in the year 2000, we had the bubble burst. There and things happened along the way also in 1984. Before, there was a real downturn in whole computer books. They had published too many. And there, so there were periods, it wasn't all just easy, easy. But in the year two, things really burst. The internet went bad for years and companies went out of business and there was no demand at the level that we had seen previously for our computer manuals. So fortunately for me, I had one or two clients in the mind spirit space thing. Dr. Irvin Laszlo, I was particularly interested in science meeting spirituality. And so I've been kind of the go agent in space and that's been pre pretty much our dominant space. We still do a lot of computers we, and I've always been fascinated with business. So we've always had a 
a lot of business biographies. We did several books about Steve Jobs. We've done books about other business leaders. I represented Linus Torvalds when he wrote his autobiography. So technology, business always had a full interest. And then I became friends with all these people, Eckhart and Neo and Marianne Williamson and Deepak and they're friends. And so I get called not just for their books, but, oh, we want to do a special event. I think you can, you know, talk to Deepak. Or, and, and even though I don't represent them, you know, I'm friends with, um, I, I represent them on special projects only, many of these people. Um, we're all friends and we end up seeing each other at the same events. And so that's very enjoyable. And it was very necessary because I, I felt, you know, 20 years ago, I had mastered technology, but there was no real heart and soul in books I was representing. So now I have both. Right. Because the technology is equally important, but you do have to address the heart and soul. It's the CEO Huddle, brought to you by Millionaire.live. Spreadsheets, GDV, fast cars, or just great backstories. It's two grit mates on the CEO Huddle. Learn business in the lab There's gonna come a time when you can run. And so... Um... I mean, you've, you've got a wide range of, of um, books that you publish, but I, I think the million, the, the multi-million dollar question is, what is the secret to success? So wh- how does a Feng Shui book become such a, an amazing success? And Well, in my case, I think it's... I am, I mean, I'm blessed. And I think that for almost everyone who's been successful, there, there's an element of destiny, if you will. There's an element of good fortune that has to be there. Mm. Alone is not enough. You can be destined for greatness and screw it up. I can show you many people yeah. who are super talented and have found a way to destroy their success. So you need to be focused. I, I really think that being a, a success requires you to be a good person. The better human being you are, the more successful you're going to be. I also think that you need to to be self-reflective, you need to know why you're doing what you're doing. And it should never just be for the money. If I only focused on clients who would make me a lot of money, I never would have had the success that I've enjoyed. Um, I, I People, I mean, I had one publisher said, Bill, you're the agent for stray cats. I don't know you come up with these people. They're, 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 they're talented people, but you know the chances of them being successful are remote. And that is actually true for the majority of all authors. It's remote that anyone's gonna make a million dollars. But somehow I've represented over a dozen people who had never written a book before who have made more than a million dollars. And that's, Mm. we're probably the only agency in the history of book publishing who's done that. You have many agents, big agencies that took on celebrities or best-selling authors who had already made a million dollars and continue. I mean, it's much easier to take an author who's made a million dollars and get to 10 million it is to take someone who's never made anything and get them to a million. So I'm very proud of what we've achieved. And I do think that a lot of it is that I care about people and I care about creating a better world. That's really our mission statement company to help authors and publishers create and distribute books that will improve the world. And that has been my focus. I used to wake up every morning saying, how am I going to save the universe today? I really felt like I was on a mission. And, you know, it's a saving the universe in a small way. For my clients whose livelihoods offended on what I was able to achieve for them, I was saving their little world. 
So it, it wasn't completely just, oh, you know, being yeah. facetious. I also have observed other major business successes who have had similar points of view. I remember Pat McGovern, who founded IDG Books, which and IDG was much bigger than IDG Books. He became a multi-billionaire. Um, IDG Research, uh, the, the Dummy series was just one of the IDG Books uh, productions. But I remember meeting with Pat and he was an MIT graduate and he was a scientist and very bright man. But what really I think propelled him to success and it could be delusional, but it worked, is he really felt he was on a mission from God. He really felt he was sort of divinely appointed to, to make a difference. And I think that if you, and if you go back to Steve Jobs, I didn't get to have, you know, an intimate relationship with Steve, but I, I ended up, you know, learning a lot about what motivated him. And um, he really was motivated to the world. He was never motivated by him. If you look at his personal lifestyle, particularly before he was married and had children, it was sort of Spartan. Mm. I mean, he didn't really care about material things that much as an individual, but he did care about, I mean, there was no accident that they called the ads the Big Brother ad back in 1984 when he was knocking IBM. It really was about shaking up the system, about giving power to the people. I mean, it was kind of radical at the time. We're gonna take this little computer box and everyone's gonna have the same power that these big corporations have. Mm. And then he had his sense of style and design, of course, insanely great was his battle cry. You know, we're gonna make something insanely great. He really was not content with just being quote successful. There's yeah. something more having him. And I would say in a totally different way, cause I'm no Steve Jobs and you know, I'm not, I'm not that interested in the creative processes. I'm more interested in the human processes. So for me, it's been, oh, this book really is, you know, it touched me, it's gonna to touch somebody else. Even if we only sold a thousand copies, the thousand people that are gonna read this book are gonna benefit from this book. That's my motivation. And I'll take on Stray Cats and books that will only sell a thousand or 2000 yeah. copies. And every once in a while, a book that most people think would only sell a couple of thousand goes on and sells a million because nobody in this business can really predict success from a new author. Yeah. They can't do it. But how do you deal? Because I've been through this. So it strikes me that if you write a book, it's like your child. So, you know, mm -hmm. everyone thinks their child is the brightest and prettiest and cleverest. If you write a book, it becomes your, your baby, doesn't it? And you think it's wonderful and, you know, you think you're going to change the world. How, how how do you deal with people like me coming to you thinking that I'm well, going to sell well, 50 million I like, I like people to be realistic. <laughs> I, I wasn't. You can't imagine the number of authors who have approached me and say, I've written the next whatever, and you're going to make a million dollars. I'm going to make a million dollars. They don't even understand. They that have to make me. six and a half million for me to make a million. <laughs> That's not going to motivate me. Um, I have to like the person, as I tell my other agents who work for me, you can edit the manuscript, but you can't edit the human being. First order of business, choose people that you want to help and who you enjoy helping, because otherwise it's work. And for me, I don't consider I do work. I mean, it is work, but I, I, I enjoy it, helping people. And I want to know what's going to happen next. Which book is going to make it? I don't know. Fortunately, I do things very quickly. I can read a full manuscript in an hour. 
Um, I can analyze new material in it. And so, you know, I've represented literally tens of thousands of books and thousands of them have, have done well. Um, I would be lying if I said I knew at the time I represented a book that I had a sense of how many copies it would release. I'm always very conservative. Now, mitigating that is we do have authors come to us with what they call author platforms. So if you have significant social media, and significant today is hundreds of thousands, not tens of thousands. You have to have hundreds of thousands of followers. And even that is in some cases not sufficient. You need hundreds of thousands of proven customers. So you need to be selling your followers something, not them following you. So, but if you all that, then yes, we can start to be more uh, analytical about, oh, this book is going to sell. This book really merits a six-figure advance. Mm. And that's the level at which the big New York publishers are operating. Because so few, I remember when I was a senior editor at Harcourt Grace Yovanovitch back in 1979, 1980, um, I was given two books a season that didn't have to work out on the P&L. That's the profit and loss statement. Yeah. It be taken on because I believed in the book and not every book we published necessarily had to make money. Today, that's gone. The reality is every book published does not make money. In fact, only 2% of the books published by the major publishers makes a profit. What the advance is, the advance is. One of the reasons the industry has switched to, well, we might as well pay at least a $50,000 advance because if the book isn't gonna sell at least 20,000 copies, we, we're gonna lose money anyway. So it's either 50,000 or nothing. So this is sad for new authors because most new authors can't justify on paper at least a 50,000 or larger advance. So I had started to turn down authors who were at that lower level and there's a few exceptions, but for the most part, you know, you can go to a small independent publisher and get a $5,000 advance and then give up 80% of your intellectual property. So approached us independently because we're one of the top agencies in the world and put us in their, what at the time was called White Gloves Pro. They had to change the name because of Black Lives Matter, even though it makes no sense to change the name. Um, and so we're now publishing as well as agenting books. And so what we're recommending for new authors is, well, come into our program, a little bit of upfront cost, but you have the same level of professional as if we were Random House. We, we have a network editors, designers, everything else. And the books are accepted by the industry as truly published books rather than self-published. The problem with self-publishing is really stigma and the lack of quality. There's over a million and a half, maybe two million self-published books a year, and 90% of them don't have good editing, don't have good covers. You know, they're just, they're just being thrown out there. And so as a result, the, the, and there's always exceptions, but the majority of, of self-published books sell less than 100 copies. Wow. So it's more of an exercise that is just cluttering the airwaves, if you will, making yeah. it harder for the quality. So we, we consider our program hybrid. So many of the advantages of both self-publishing, which is speed to market and author control of the marketing, which is really important, but it also has the benefits of we can have books distribution, we can have foreign rights sold, we, you know, and we can have professional editing and, and design throughout. So that's sort of where we're headed as a company. 
Um, I'm still looking for big name authors to agent, but you know, and, and you know, I'm a softy. If someone's a friend of a friend, I'll look at it. But I don't really look at unsolicited uh, material. I have people in the company who look at it, and nine. 5% or more of the unsolicited material may be appropriate for our self-publishing, but definitely would not be appropriate for agenting. The, the bar is just too high. Yeah. If you're not already established, you're, you're not going to get a deal with a major publisher. Yeah. There's always going to be that one exception that they'll pay a lot of press to, to make authors think they still have answers. But the reality, you have just as good a chance of buying a lottery ticket as landing with a major publisher. And I, I often ask, um, what would you say to your 20 year old self, Bill? But I, I think you, you seem to be somebody that seemed to have. Had, well, had to my 20 year old self at the time, I would say, well done. Everything you did, mate, you know, worked out for you. Definitely was nonlinear. I mean, I just I followed my art and I was always intellectually curious. So I did a lot of different things. I didn't sort of settle. You know, I had this book publishing opportunity. So, I mean, I wrote my first book when I was 16 and I worked in a bookstore for my, my father owned a bookstore as well when I was 14. And when I was 20, I had done thing you can do in book publishing, including sales and marketing. Um, so that was always there. So I didn't really think about it. Um, wanted to try other things. So, you know, I did and encourage young people try different things. The reality is, what I most wanted to be when I was 20 was a writer. I, mean, I think the majority of people who go into book publishing want to be writers. And I didn't want to just be a nonfiction writer. I wanted, you know, a great novel. And I did. I still haven't published that great novel. I've published another novel I wrote since then. I'm rereading now the, the great novel I wrote almost 45 years ago. And uh, I don't know whether I'm going to publish it or not. I, I'm a different person than I was 45 years ago. But... Um, if you love books and you love ideas, publishing is a great profession. If you have a lifestyle that requires a significant level of financial resource, publishing isn't such a good profession. Uh, everyone in our industry is, relatively speaking, underpaid. We have exceptions, including me, and if you get lucky, you, know, you can make a lot of money. But the majority of not just authors, but editors, book marketing people, um, you know, very few people are making mid six figures, very, very few. Right. And we talked about, you know, sometimes it's destiny and people like Jobs and, and Gates and the like, it seems like it's almost fate, but they've also got, they always seem to have a mentor along the way that they meet. So- Well, I don't know somebody? if they all have a mentor. I, I'm not really aware of Steve having a mentor. What they had is the ability to recognize talent. They have a lot of discipline. Have even when they have big egos like Steve and Bill, they also have humility in that they are willing to let others carry all. They don't try to do everything themselves. So yeah, there's traits, and you know I could probably write there something about it because I've met so many of these people. But um, it's great to have a mentor, but you don't have to have a mentor you need to have access to information and access to talent right right so apart from your father who i guess was a big influence mm -hmm. was there anybody else yes. who, who influenced you majorly oh, as a writer Marquez, i think is the great writer of the 
20th century, and I was very influenced by, also by many of my teachers. I mean, from a literary point of view, I studied with Amy Rodriguez Monegal at Yale, and I got to meet Nicanor Parra and uh, Octavio Paz and all of the major writers of Latin America. And they definitely influenced my appreciation for literature. In terms from a business perspective, I would say that in addition to my father, I was influenced by Andy Kay. I got to know him very well, and I saw the nonlinear systems. And what impressed me about Andy was he too was motivated more by service than by money. He actually funded uh, Maslow's work uh, you know, at a time before he was super wealthy and before Abraham Maslow was as well known as he did. So, you know, I, I have had mentors and, and certainly people that I've learned from, and I do encourage people, if you can find a mentor, you should. But I, I, I just caution people because there's so much made of, you know, the importance of mentorship and not every individual is in a position where they can have access to a, a mentor. Mm -hmm. So I don't want people who don't have access to feel that they're somehow limited in what they can achieve. There yeah. are ways of contacting people today that we didn't have. 30, 40, 50 years ago. And if you have good ideas and you have a, a, a sense of purpose, you find the right people to help you. Right. And so I've got I've got two questions to, to ask you, Bill, before we close. One is, if, if you were sent to a desert island with one book, what would the book be? Oh, it would be 100 Years of Solitude. I, I've read it a dozen times. I could read it another dozen times because it's so well written. And every time I read it, I see something new in it. Oh, wow. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll look that one up. And the, the second question is, if you went to your favorite place for dinner and you can have four guests, alive or dead, who would be around your table? Einstein, because I, I respect the work that he did. Winston Churchill, because I respect the role that he played throughout history. I get three or I get four? How many? Four. Four altogether. I'm trying to, so it'll be a dinner conversation. Um, I'd actually invite Bob Dylan, though I'm not sure how much conversationalist he would be, but I think that, <laughs> As a poet and songwriter, he's made a huge, huge contribution to the world. And then the fourth person, I want to choose a woman. We need, and of the women, much harder for me in terms of, because I, I, I'm more, restricted in how you know many women I've interacted with. I think I might just choose someone like Nicole Kidman, uh, an actress who's had a, a very uh, you know varied career and also in her case coming from a different country. I think that would be a very interesting group. Wow, wow, fascinating. That's really interesting. Perfect. Well, Bill, thank you for your time. That's been a pleasure for me. Um, and I am somebody who, you you did, I wouldn't say take pity on, but you gave me more than one chance. You did. No, I liked your book. You're a creative writer. There really is such a small difference between a book that is kind of a curiosity that didn't make anybody any money and it becomes a smash bestseller. You know, 
Yeah. Th there's not that much of a difference. And the quality of your excellent. So, well, you know. well, I'm still on a mission, I promise you, to get 200,000 followers. And then I'll be coming back and saying, right, Bill, where are we going? Okay, where we go from there? Okay, well, enjoy the rest of your evening. I am going to say sayonara and go for my beach walk. I do that every day. I either golf, tennis, or beach walk. Good. Physical exercise, even during a pandemic, very important. Yeah, got to be done. Well, Bill, thank you for your time, and we'll speak again. Okay, you take care. Take care now. Good listen. Thoroughly enjoyed that, Grimace. So you're a creative writer. So he like says. It. Yeah, thank I you like for that. It. And um, I suppose if he says, you've got to sit up and take notice. Yeah. Well, I thought it's a good subject because maybe 10 years ago, there was a view that we wouldn't read books anymore because it would all be e-books mm. and things. Yeah, yeah. And what's happened is, as he says, more people are reading, especially during lockdown. Mm. So, that, so more people are reading e-books now, but because the general number's gone up, we're still buying more books than we were before. Yeah. Um, so I think everybody reads a book, don't they? Well, it's interesting because I only in the last few weeks have come across an issue with blue light off computer screens, tablet screens, oh. mobile phone screens, even TV screens, yeah. causing problems with migraine attacks. Oh. So I can't transition, even though I bought these blue light glasses, I can't yeah. transition away from, and I thoroughly enjoy the feel of having yes. a real book mm. in your hands and reading the pages. It's a bit like CDs, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I, I still, and vinyl. And better still. Vinyl I, coming back. I still love reading sleeve notes. Mm. And I sometimes, um, if I see, uh, Steve Perry did a solo album, and so I, I then Google the band because I'd never heard of any of them. Yeah. And then find that, you know, the lead guitarist who I'd never heard of had played with 15 bands I had heard of. Mm. So you can't do that with Spotify, can you really? No. Even though I do walk the dog twice a day listen to Spotify. And I too have a Spotify account, but I still have, just in the other office actually, yeah. in, there's, a, there's a, a big floor-to-ceiling cupboard which is stacked full of CDs. No way. It is. It's the basis of the music library yeah. for the radio station we have. Are they in alphabetical order? They are. No way. They're in, i tell you what they're in, artists are in alphabetical order. Yeah. And then the various artist CDs, of which there are many, yeah. are in chronological order. Okay. Starting in the 1950s and then working forward. Re wow, that's amazing. And I know there weren't any CDs in the 1950s before anybody writes a letter. Yeah. But the they were subsequently so, so they yeah. were subsequently produced. <laughs> so hang on a minute. What you, what you, have I taken too many Neurofen? We're talking about <laughs> we're talking about the nineteen fifties, <laughs> and you think people are going to write letters? <laughs> people like writing letters to complain. I've just done it. I've yeah. just got a, my son got a parking ticket for entering a car park that was a reserved car park, but the cameras got him, and he turned round and he was silly enough to stop yeah. and chat with his mate, and then they left and he got a parking ticket. Mm. Um, so I wrote a letter, and uh, the ticket was cancelled. Good for you. Because well, I did my homework. Yeah. Well, I caught the train from Yarm to Leeds. Which is in the northeast, which is in <coughs> West York. In England, yeah. yeah. And there was a, there's a uh, ticket machine at Yarm Station. wasn't mm -hmm. working. The, usually there's a guard on the train. Yeah. Didn't come round. This is because of COVID. Yeah. Right? They stopped coming round for a while. So we'll get to Leeds. I know there's a barrier at Leeds. Yeah, yeah. But there's a ticket office. Mm. So I walked across to the ticket office and stopped by four men with high-vis vests. And they said, 
what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to buy a ticket from the ticket office, strangely enough, just like I'm going to buy a pasty from Greg's. <laughs> Which is a pasty shop in England. In England, yeah. in, the, in Europe. And so they said, oh, um, I said, because there wasn't, the ticket machine wasn't working and um, I don't have the app, but I know the conductor's on the train, but he never came around. But I know there's a ticket office anyway and I know there's a barrier that I'm not going to jump over. And they said, oh, can we just take your name and address? I said, yeah, of course you can. So I took my name and address. I went, thank you very much, sir. Off I went. I went and bought a return ticket. Yeah, yeah. So I've now got a return ticket. Mm -hmm. A week later, I get a letter with a fine, £136. (laughs) (laughs) A fine for being honest. I thought, no, 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 no. So I wrote this letter and said, "Um, I had had four opportunities to buy a ticket. Three. Um, So none none of which happened. So no, don't. Anyway. I didn't get a letter about saying it was rescinded. I didn't hear anything. Just wait till the court case come. <laughs> and then come and ask your great mate to write the letter to get you out of it. Yeah, well, it was six months ago. All right, then you should be fine. So, uh, And I sent a picture of the ticket yeah. as well. But sometimes you've got to, haven't you? You do. You do, because my son's parking ticket, it took them something ridiculous like 115 days from the incident date to get the ticket issued. Really? Now, under... British Parking Association regulations, and there's a particular law that the BPA have to have all their members follow. Mm. Tickets, if ANPR cameras are used in car parks, must be issued within 14 days of the parking offence date. Uh, And if they're not, they're in contradiction of both the BPA regulations, and I can't think off the top of my head what the law is called, but I will remember probably after we've had this. So I just pointed this out to the company and said, I am a journalist. And I'm more than happy to report you for operating outside of both the law and your your trade association regulations, which means you actually put yourself liable to losing access to the NPR database. Oh. And I immediately got a letter back saying this ticket has been cancelled. Don't mess with Mr. Roberts. That's it. That's it, mate. That's the sign. Anyway, it's time for us to go. Um, So, well done, mate. Love the chat. Thanks. I do love the book. You gave me a copy of it. And I read it a long time ago and would recommend it to anybody. Thank you. And from it's on Amazon, by the way. Amazon. Any more plugs? Um, Amazon. Uh, <laughs> Camel in the Tents on Amazon. It's a great read. Great Christmas present, by the way. And does it say by author Great Mate on the book? No, it says my um, stage name. You can give it if you want. <laughs> it says author Peter of Wilcox. Excellent. All of this has been brought to you in association with... Camel in the Tent. (laughs) Millie, I'm your man, sack him. And... You know me, I'm fickle. Millionaire Magazine, Millionaire.live. And from books, we talk music next week. Oh, now I'm a bone to pick with you next week. We'll do it next week. All right. See you. Back to bed. Great backstories with two great mates, Peter and Dave, on the CEO Huddle. Learn business in...